I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Greece's existential debt drama of the past five months hit a climax Thursday night when the radical Greek leadership, writing a chorus of no's to the European Parliament, said yes, or at least maybe, to a tough round of austerity reforms at home in a deal that will keep Greece in the Eurozone. We've all listened all month to the rhetoric and rage out of Athens and Brussels. Here's a sample. First, the Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, pleading for a break from the bankers. And I think that you and I are allies in this. And forget that you're a Christian Democrat and I am a crazy lefty. Forget that. We are Europeans who should have an alliance on the basis of logic about this. Looking after our taxpayers, your taxpayers and my taxpayers. We're a proud people, like your people are proud. We don't like having debts that we don't repay. But at the moment, our economy has shrunk so much, we can simply not find the 312 billion that we owe. I'm not recommending that we shouldn't. All I'm saying is, help us grow so that we can repay. This is what the union is. Then came a tough dressing down this week after Greece had voted no on the banker's terms from a Belgian member of the European Parliament shouting into the face of Greece's Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras. The choice that we have is very simple. How do you want to be remembered? As an electoral accident who made its people poorer in his country? Or won't you be remembered, Mr. Tsipras, as a real revolutionary reformer. That is the choice to make. And I know what your people want. 80% of your people want to stay in Europe and in the Eurozone. So show what you can now and show that you're a real leader and not a false prophet. Do it. So, close to a tragic curtain, It seemed nobody wanted to unwind the post-war project of a peaceful, united Europe. Europe gets a bookkeeping adjustment, but not a breakup. And still, this story is bigger than Greece, bigger than Europe. We have been feeling the ripples in our own stuck politics in a pre-presidential year around wealth, around membership, inequality, banker power. In America, it's been sounding as if Ted Cruz on the right Bernie Sanders on the left were both shouting at that high Euro pitch, both with doomsday warnings that something is coming apart in our foundations. We're touching all the bases this hour in Greece, in the fate of Europe, in the USA. Mark Blythe is the straight-talking Scotsman at the hazardous intersections of money and power. Arthur Goldhammer is our eye on Europe culture and politics, all ensnared now in economics. Richard Parker is steeped in Greek politics and American, too. We begin with Mark Blythe, who teaches political economy at Brown University. Mark, you've been telling us since the 08 meltdown that Europe has done nothing but kick the can down the road. Are we looking at the end of the road yet, or maybe the cliff? I'm not convinced we are. I think I recall looking on the BBC website yesterday and happening upon a link that said, June 23rd, Greeks at final last stop. (laughs) And here we are again. So a proposal 
has been submitted, which seems to be a bit of a capitulation, but it hasn't been accepted yet. And there has to be the other side of that trade. Are they going to get anything back? Because if not, we're simply doing a rerun of where we were before we had the referendum. And if that's the case, then there's going to be a breakdown. And we've had a situation where the European Central Bank has been squeezing the Greek banks to make sure that by Friday everyone's sufficiently freaked out to sign whatever they want. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly the type of tactics that backfired and brought 61% of people out to vote no. So I'm far from convinced that we're at the end of the road or indeed that an agreement's on the table. I assume you would have voted no on the referendum. Well, it's funny. It's very similar to the Scottish independence referendum. Mm. Let me tell you why. If you break this down, the really dramatic thing is the way that different age groups voted. So I saw a poll for Greece 12 hours before they actually took the vote. 71% of people under 35 were going to vote no. So all the older people are going to vote yes. Exactly the same thing happened in Scotland. Why? Because if you're old and you've got assets, you don't want uncertainty over those assets. You don't want your nice euro-denominated house to suddenly be new drachmas. If, however, you've been through hell and back for the past five to six years, you're asset negative, you're up to your eyes in debt and you're unemployed, asset uncertainty is somebody else's problem, I'm going to vote yes. Or rather, I should say I'm going to vote no in this case. So you have this generational split on top of lots of different uh, asset splits, and that's the way that this has worked out. It's funny. You think Scotland. I was thinking Ireland and the vote for same-sex marriage. There was a lot of similar generational thing. No to authority, no to the priests, yep. no to the bankers. Absolutely. We got screwed by the, the in the whole meltdown thing. The answer is no. The, answer, the young people are basically had enough, and for good reason. You know, you made an interesting comment earlier I mean, months ago, that as a question of welfare economics, let alone morality, it is not clear, you said, that everyone should repay their debts. If the condition of the debt is eternal debt servitude, is that what Greece is facing? Seems to have... Well, it was, a, it was a version of it. I mean, the ver- the uh, offer that was on the table that was uh, going to be voted upon, but then was withdrawn and then became the subject of the referendum and then disappeared. The numbers on that were pretty startling. Basically, the fifth oldest country in the world that has chronically low productivity, that shrunk by a third, is going to grow, according to projections in this wonderful agreement, at around 2% a year, which is about... F- 25% more than its historic average. It's going to do that for 30 years while running a 3.5% budget surplus, and it's going to hand over 4% of GDP for 30 years to foreign creditors. That's never going to happen because it's never happened in human history. Every single debt right a workout in human history has had some kind of forgiveness or lengthening of maturities or mm. combination or Brady bonding or some other fix. What they were signing was nonsense. That, that's an interesting part of the history that we, we've just been learning, uh, for me, in the last week, that Germany had the benefit of a 50% write-down of its debt after World War II. Uh, it was a disaster for Germany, for the world, when their debts after World War I were not written down radically. It may, You've written that, that it had a lot to do with the rise of fascism and Hitler. Uh, what have we learned on that score? We've learned that there's incredible historical amnesia in Germany, and no matter how many times you remind them of it, they don't want to think about it. 
So let's run through the quick version of the story. By 1923, they basically put a hyperinflation into their economy as deliberate government policy so they could bung up the payment system and screw the French over on reparations. In 1924, they got the the Dawes plan, which gave them a haircut on the debt. Then they got the Young plan in 29. Then they got 1932 further debt relief. And then they got a 50% write-off in 1953, as you said. Just the other day, we had Donald Tusk, the Polish uh, foreign minister, mm. berating the Greeks, completely forgetting that in 1991, Poland got, I believe, a 50, if not a 60% debt write-down from the United States. The hypocrisy here is absolutely astonishing. The voice of Germany that, that seems to have prevailed in, in the crunch here was voiced, I thought, with a kind of shocking rudeness and, and ruthlessness op-ed in the New York Times yesterday by saying, like, Get out of here. You know, you, you, you don't renegotiate. You don't come into the bank and say, I, I, my, my husband's out of work. Uh, you've got to do something about the mortgage. Goodbye. You know, the, the funny thing is, is it's put through this kind of moral hazard frame. This is the way they like to talk about it. Well, you know, you can't give forgiveness because they'll be back again the next time. And I'm always reminded of the definition of schutzpah, which is the kid who shoots both his, both his parents and then appeals on the grounds that he's an orphan. Right. This is very similar. Creditors are the ones that are meant to be the moral hazard problem, not the debtors. And the way that this whole thing has been framed is backside foremost, to say the least. Review the point that you have made to me earlier, that this is not really an economic crisis in Europe. It's a banking crisis. It's the meltdown of 08, over-leveraged banks fixing themselves, not fixing anything in Greece, really. Greece was a conduit for a bailout, particularly in the 2010 bailout. What happened in very short form was the following. By the time that the financial crisis hit, because the euro had come in, lots of banks in core countries and throughout the rest of Europe were able to borrow in what was effectively a foreign currency. Think about Latin America borrowing in dollars. So you don't get to print it. Your bonds get very expensive. Your yields go down. You can borrow lots of money. Happy, happy, happy. Suddenly, there's a liquidity shock to the system. Nobody has any money. You've got a massive problem now. How are you going to pay your debts? Well, you can't, particularly because your central bank doesn't even think it's a real central bank. So you've got massively levered banks. Those banks are filled with assets that they bought in countries like Greece and Italy and Spain and so on. And there's no way that they can make those assets whole. The only way they could do it is if they got a bailout. The bailout came from the core countries' taxpayers, went through Greece, and went right Hmm. back to these banks as basically a bailout. That was then, in 2012, taken off of their books and put into this thing that's now called the European Stability Mechanism, which is why the taxpayers of Europe are still on the hook for something they think they gave to Greece, but they actually gave to basically banks like Societe Generale and Commerzbank in Germany. You, the, the, uh, the bankers are winning, uh, but you say the real problem is on the, on the left, the German left. You lectured those social democrats this year that they're the heirs of the Marxist revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg, but they stand today as the joint enforcers of a creditor's paradise. What's to be done? If you look at centre-left party vote shares, and the British election was the latest, greatest example of this, centre-left parties have been clobbered. Why? Because they've basically been utterly complicit in building what I like to describe as a creditor's paradise, which is what Europe is these days. Essentially, capital rules and labour adjusts. That's that's the script. And because of that, their core constituency has deserted them. The people in the middle will come to them or go from them. And they're getting clobbered by right-wing and left-wing upstarts from the 
UKIP and Britain to Syriza and Greece, which have said, enough, we don't want any more of this. So the people who are most terrified of this are actually the centre-left parties, who you think be the natural allies of the working and middle classes against these austerity programmes and against these types of economic policies. Fascinating. When we come back, ants and grasshoppers, Germans at work, Greeks at the beach, all sorts of nasty fables and labels rising again in the happy family of Europe. You wonder, and I'll put it to Arthur Goldhammer first, is this name-calling serious? Is it over? What does it portend in the politics and the culture of dear old Europe? This is Open Source. We're talking about the aftermath of what looks like a settlement of the Greek debt crisis. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We're talking about Greece, deep in debt, but safely in the Eurozone for a while, it surely appears. Arthur Goldhammer is a pillar of the Center for European Studies at Harvard. He's an esteemed translator, French to English especially, 140 books so far, translator of writers from de Tocqueville and the Marquis de Sade to the best-selling economist Thomas Piketty. And he keeps an eagle eye on European culture and politics. Arthur Goldhammer, count the ways, count the symptoms of Europe's unhappiness Uh, Well, this crisis has revealed the deep flaws at the heart of uh, the structure of Europe. Uh, You asked uh, earlier, are the Europeans calling each other names? Uh, Yes, indeed they are. Uh, What is really unfortunate about the way this debt crisis has been handled is that it has pitted one country against another. Mm -hmm. The European Union was founded after World War II uh, in order to contain national animosities and what it's doing now is exacerbating them. And that, How deep are those differences, by the way, between you know, German industry, practice, straight ahead, you know, taking care of business, and those, those song and dance Greeks? In a way, uh, it would be easier to analyze the problem if it were a question of sectoral interest against sectoral interest or class interest against class interest. Uh, What we have here is rather a a crisis of ideas, an economic ideology, ordo-liberalism, which uh, has uh, the Germans uh, firmly in its grip. They cannot think outside the box uh, whatsoever. Uh, And they've got everyone else in Europe buffaloed, especially the French. The French have been Mm. lamentable in this crisis, as have the German Social Democrats. The French may have made a last-minute play to save things. They sent a technical support team to Greece to help uh, uh, write the uh, agreement that seems to have been, uh, or the proposal that has been put forward today and may uh, lead eventually to an agreement. But until now, Francois Hollande has been regrettably silent. Uh, The responsibility of center-left parties is really deeper than that because it was the center-left, in particular, the French uh, Social Democrat Jacques Delors, when he was president of the European Commission, who created the euro uh, and uh, the single market as a way of uh, expanding the scale of of European industries. He did that because he thought it was necessary to preserve the European welfare state, to which Europeans of all stripes are attached. Uh, 
I think this is not always fully appreciated in the United States. Uh, Americans tend to think uh, that one party is opposed to the welfare state and another mm. party uh, supports it. The tax and spenders are for the welfare state. That's not the case in Europe. The, uh, the German welfare state was the creation of Bismarck. It uh, uh, goes back to uh, a problem of stabilizing a, a society divided by classes. But you're saying, as Mark did, that the center-left parties look enfeebled. But now the, the radical left, Syriza, has, has, may have been broken too. What does it say about all these other populist nationalist parties rising here and there in Europe, Spain, Ireland, you know, Sinn Féin, uh, uh, the rising power in the republic, but elsewhere. Uh, yes, at this point, it's uh, very difficult to foresee what the implications will be for radical parties elsewhere. We have uh, another radical left party, Podemos, in Spain. Uh, the Spanish for the, the current Spanish government, which is conservative, was staunchly opposed to uh, any debt relief for Greece, for fear that any success by Syriza would encourage Podemos. Uh, so in order to maintain itself in power, it, it uh, opposed the deal. You have many... Uh, Germany, uh, although it's uh, portrayed uh, as the villain in this piece, and in many ways it was, it wasn't necessarily the most inflexible or staunchly opposed to, uh, uh, to movement on the situation. You have other countries like Finland, uh, the Netherlands, Slovakia, uh, which for each for a different reason mm. uh, is opposed to a settlement. So the fact that there is no central government, uh, no, uh, uh, despite the existence of a European parliament, there's really no place for the expression of political voice at the European level where these national differences can be worked out uh, and compromises uh, struck. What you have instead is... Uh, a technocratic layer of government uh, looking only at the bottom line, working with spreadsheets and not dealing with the human mm. suffering that is very real. Let's talk about, I mean, I would love you, especially, Arthur, to go very, very big picture on the history and the future of social democratic Europe. The idea post-war that included, venture, you know, uh, private capitalism, but also free higher education, dense networks of public transportation, the welfare state, in short, as opposed to neoliberalism? Uh, the story of social de democracy after World War II in Europe uh, is uh, in large part a story of success. The goals that were set forth by social democratic parties at the end of the war were uh, slowly, little by little, achieved over the 1950s uh, and 60s. Uh, then came the crunch, uh, the oil crisis uh, of the 1970s, uh, the rise of globalization. And uh, since then, there has been great pressure for retrenchment, for some backward movement on the European welfare state. Now, that in itself has raised, uh, has uh, uh, intensified national differences in Europe, so that each national welfare state uh, Leads to, in each in each uh, uh, nation, you have political parties uh, reacting in ways uh, intended to preserve the welfare state in their country, but at the expense of uh, welfare states in other countries. Solidarity has been broken uh, since the 1980s in Europe. So that's the uh, the big picture history. Now, can anything be done to reverse that? 
that uh, at the moment uh, is looking very bleak. Uh, we'll come back to Europe and to Greece, but I want to introduce Richard Parker, who knows too much about Greece, period, but a lot about American politics. Doesn't this remind you, this whole drama, Richard, of that famous New York Daily News headline, 1975, Ford to City, Drop Dead, President says there will be no bailout of our great city, which did get something and surely has recovered in a spectacular way. What's What, what are the American connections that pop into your head here, including 2016? Yeah, Chris, I mean, look, uh, uh, Mark and Art have laid out a, a, a large architecture here, which I think we need to pay attention to. And if I were to summarize it, I'd say that the evolution of what we talk about as capitalism is a 250, 300-year-old process at this point. And it's gone through a series of stages. We're in a new particular stage that I think we have to pay attention to because in the process of globalizing outward a European North American model, we awakened the capitalist spirit across Asia and increasingly across Latin America and Africa. And it's introduced a global wage and product competition that the post-Second World War social welfare model never anticipated. They were still struggling with decolonization when they thought about the rest of the world, and they were mm-hmm. for decolonization. They didn't think that they were letting loose the the, the, the hounds of capital, uh, you know, 6,000 or 10,000 miles away from them to produce the same goods at a fraction of the price. So we're now in the 21st century in which this capitalist model, and there's no unitary capitalist model, as I say. I think there are different eras, epochs, and we always have to be attentive to those. But this epoch is defined by the consequences of that rapid globalization and the introduction of Asian labor at a wage level far below uh, that of the West. That uh, to try to think now about what it is that's going to restore prosperity or comedy or anything else to the West by thinking only in Western terms is utter folly. We have to begin to think in global terms about the structure, the scope of the crisis, and then think about where we go from here. Hmm. I'd also, you know, like to draw on the example you offered of Gerald Ford, uh, uh, you know, drop dead to New York City. It was not fundamentally a successful stratagem for a long (laughs) Ford, uh, a long Ford era. (laughs) The the Ford Edsel did better than Gerald Ford did in terms of American acceptance. So I think that there's a tension here that we have to pay attention to, which the, the Germans are paying attention to, which is there's an entire, within the electorate, there's a body that I refer to as the neglectorate, the neglected voters. And that body of those who are enfranchised but feel voiceless, who feel unrepresented, has been steadily growing Mm. over the last 30 years. And there's no sign of it feeling more enfranchised or more heard. The, The difference in the 21st century, and part of the reason I think you see this as generational conflict, is not just about the elderly have assets and the young don't. It's also that the language of rights and of economic uh, uh, equality that were joined in the 19th century became separated. Uh, I don't want to say specifically in the 1960s and 70s, but they are separated. So we've we've been living through a long track of expansion of rights, which we refer to as social or political rights, but without a connection conceptually, politically, ideologically with an advance of economic rights and economic freedom. Now, what we're going to do, I believe, is enter a 30, 40-year-long period in which the guns of attention 
are going to turn toward economic rights that are already disquieting elites across North America, elites across uh, uh, Europe, and increasingly across Russia and, and most of Asia. Richard, I love your word, neglectorate, and uh, I, I want to adopt it. But <laughs> It's not copyright. You, you're welcome but to it, use it. Uh, the, but the first observation about it in this country, and I don't know about Europe, but is that it's it's right and left. I mean, I've I've always thought I thought ever since the Tea Party surfaced, I I, I thought it was misnamed, but also, um, you know, falsely separated from a, so much of the underlying feeling in in Occupy. Occupy are the sons and daughters of the Tea Party right, but the the sense of being left out, the sense of where's the future, the sense of work, meaning, citizenship inclusion uh, applies, I won't say across the board, but all sorts of places. The sense of neglect spans an awful lot of people with a lot of different views. And I would never be one to argue that the left and the right are somehow going to suddenly turn the circle and come together. That's a particular fantasy that I'm not uh, persuaded by. No, but when Ralph Nader, you know, says that Rand Paul is the most interesting figure in American politics. Something is trying to converge, no? Yes, but that speaks to Ralph Nader and Rand Paul, not underlying movements. I th- Go ahead. Mark Blythe. Well, one way of thinking about this, and I'm very persuaded by what uh, is on the table just now, uh, is the following. So you go back to the 1970s, you an interesting thing across the world. Let's, let's call it sort of like the way that social democratic capitalism was. Profits were at an all-time low for corporate profits. Labor strength was at an all-time high. Wages, real wages, are all-time high. So you had labor strength. You had dependent, not independent, central banks. Finance was in the box. Industry was in charge. Go forward mm. 30 years. You've got a complete reversal mm. of all of those principles. And this idea that you sort of you yin and you yang from one to the other, I think it's very, very persuasive. And it really seems that we're on this cusp. Now, what is it that's driving this? Think about in the 70s, what was the problem? It was inflation. And in inflation, it's kind of a class-specific tax. You've got financial assets, you get whacked really, really hard and really, really quickly. You've got profits, you get whacked really hard and really, really quickly. On the other hand, if you're on a fixed income, despite what people like to tell you, if there's enough of you, you'll vote and you'll get bailed out, right? Mm. The reverse applies now. You're almost in a deflation. Inflation rates are falling across the board. What does that mean? It means that debt gets harder to pay back, but it becomes more valuable at the same time. And this engenders this type of anti-creditor, creditor-debtor standoff politics that we're seeing, not just across the Say that again. What happens to debt or debtors? Debt becomes more valuable, but the ability to pay it back declines. So you end up with Greece writ large everywhere. And that empowers parties of the left and the right. What is it that National Front and UKIP and also Syriza have in common? They're all anti-creditor parties, and they're all empowered by deflation. (laughs) Arthur Goldhammer. Uh, yes, I'd like to beat that. Uh, I'd like to take up uh, Richard's idea of a neglectorate. I too uh, like the word uh, a great deal. Uh, and when we look at Europe, we find neglectorates everywhere. Uh, the country uh, I know most about is France, and there the ranks of Marine Le Pen's extreme right, Front National, uh, have been swelled by a neglectorate. Uh, people who feel that they are the people who are swept aside by globalization who uh, do not benefit from uh, many of the uh, 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 virtues of the European Union, the ability to study in other countries, to take jobs elsewhere, uh, uh, to uh, uh, invest in uh, 
in uh, uh, across European borders. Uh, these are people who are uh, small businessmen, retirees, uh, uh, people who feel they're uh, working class people who feel their jobs threatened by immigrants. Uh, they're neglected by mm-hmm. the, the issues that concern the European elite. So when they look to Brussels and see the kinds of policies and uh, rules that are coming out of uh, the European Union in Brussels, they say, this is doing nothing for me. And uh, we have to stop it if we want to hold on to the uh, good life that we have known here in the past. And it's uh, vaulted Marine Le Pen into the front ranks of uh, the French party system to the point where she threatens in the next presidential election. Now, uh, her negatives are still high enough that I think that uh, she probably won't win. But if we have uh, uh, any more disasters in Europe, uh, all bets are off. So that's just one example. So pull these three these threads together. We've spoken of Ireland, Scotland, Spain, Greece, you name it. The, 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 the trend is anti-creditor, you're saying, Mark, anti-globalization. Anti-elite. Anti-elite, anti-older generation, anti-euro, anti-the anti priesthoods of all kinds, you know, secular and clerical. Um, where does it go? Well, remember, Chris, that it's rebellious, uh, it's, uh, 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 but it's not revolutionary. Uh, there's no politics here yet that can be framed up out of these claims of discontent that push the, the political landscape in a particularly strong direction toward resolving the sense of neglect. What you have is a kind of acting out, an expression of frustration that is perfectly suited to a culture built on media and particularly social media and Facebook and mm-hmm. everything else so that you have a constant appetite and a constant provision of this winter of our discontents, but with no direction to it other than the next Facebook posting. Now. <laughs> You know, I, I think that the deep structural issues here borrow from older ideas of the relationship between political liberty and political equality and the ways in which they are rooted in generalized greater income and wealth equality and stability and security, not just equality. but the stu- I, I, There are lots of people who could live with lots of inequality if they thought that their own place in that unequal system was stable and projectable and they could plan and live their lives uh, in that system. But we have a system now in which income and in- wealth inequality are increasing steadily at, along with instability and insecurity. Mm. And that's a very toxic combination. But again, we have no language that moves us past rebelliousness and resentment towards something that would be more radically A quick word before the break on, should we say, plebiscitary democracy. I thought, you know, Ireland voting very solidly for for gay marriage and Greece voting no to the bankers. (laughs) You felt a trend setting in or something. What's, What's the future of that, Mark? Well, I think where I disagree slightly with Richard on this one is we've got the perspective of a bunch of old white guys. And they don't. Speak they be, yourself, they being young people. And for them, Twitter and all the social media stuff is the way that you organise in a way that we really can't conceive. And it's transnational and it cuts across classes. And whether it's intuitive at this point or whether it's really going to develop into something remains to be seen, or it could just be just noise. But I think there's actually something else going on and we haven't quite grasped what it is yet. We're trying to read the... Um the, the Uzo leaves or whatever from, from Greece. Yes, no, maybe on 
restructuring the debt. When we come back, I, I hope we'll talk about austerity, austerity politics that we don't say much about in America. This is Open Source. We're making sense of the Greek aftermath with Mark Blythe, Arthur Goldhammer, and Richard Parker. Richard, will you take a crack at the, the, the matter of austerity politics in the United States? We don't call it that, but state support for higher education goes down. Tuitions go up like a rocket. Uh, Puerto Rico suddenly has a, a, a debt crisis. Uh, how, and people feel it, but we disguise it. Where's that going? Well, I mean, again, we this this world that I think many liberals and leftists like to uh, romanticize, which is the period after the Second World War, w- wasn't just a sort of bucolic period in which the well-being of the middle and the lower and even the poor uh, classes rose uh, without problems. It, the poor were excluded from most of that period. Uh, from sharing in the benefits, and it wasn't really until later that they were able to get their hands on even some of it. Uh, And secondly, you have to remember that in the United States in particular, a lot of this Keynesian success was because it was military Keynesianism. The federal government was spending half of its budget on the U.S. military, and it was the engine of the Pentagon and the threat of Soviet communism that created the, the particular stabilities in the United States and Western Europe that allowed for unions to function and to extract shares of national income and wealth. Again, that world has gone away, and we're now integrated globally in a way that doesn't allow us to think regionally as if we can decide our fate by nation or by region. We have to think about where we are. The austerity part has been concealed in a number of ways, one of which is that we've seen more and more families put second income earners into the workforce so that the gross uh, income receipts of many, many households has been rising steadily through this period. The second is that credit has been made um, uh, not just available but addictive through the, uh, the the rise of the credit card since the 1960s and in general of the ability to finance purchases that conceal the final total net price of those goods. So you have structural sociological ways in which those are concealed. And again, things like college tuitions, because those tuitions are borne by the top 30 percent of income households in the United States, aren't recognized by the other 70 percent as a particular burden because they're either not attending or they're still attending still low-cost community colleges where they're getting community college-level quality education. Mark, would you address this Keynesian um, eclipse? It seems to be working rather nicely in China over the last many, many years, in in the in this Greek crunch, there was an air, and in, in the German bankers, there was an air of a kind of I would say Dickensian um, Scrooge, poorhouse, workhouse uh, ideology in in the bearing down on debtors. Uh, I I I thought that the yes vote would break that, but it didn't. 
Well, we don't know what it's done yet. It's only been a week. I mean, you know, we're still we're talking somehow as if it's been decided. It's the Greek aftermath, and I'm far from convinced that this mm. is the case. This is going to roll and roll and roll. And, you know, we tend to think of these big abstract categories. You know, there was a Keynesian period and there was something else. I prefer to think of it along the lines of Richard has been saying is there was a period in which credit was rationed and there was a period in which it was abundant. And there was a period in which money was essentially a veil. It was hidden behind real economic relationships. And there was a period in which money became the thing that needed to be preserved and guarded. And we went from one world to the other. And one of them is one in which basically you have super low real interest rates for people who want to borrow. You have a real Mm -hmm. high effective rate of return on financial assets. And you basically have a skewing of income and wealth all the way up to a very small number of people who control those assets. And if you simply look at the world in that way, I mean, even factoring in globalization, all the rest of it, it's very difficult to imagine a world in which you don't have austerity because the people with power in the assets want to guard the real value of those assets. And they get governments in charge who promote policies that guard those values. The Eurozone is essentially doing this to Greece. Hmm. And we are doing it essentially to our neighbours. Arthur Goldhammer, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to ask you the sort of the larger question. I mean, Europe has been reduced to these kind of tiny little bookkeeping, uh, obsessive, small-minded uh, uh, concerns when, when we expect so much more. I wonder who is thinking big in Europe at the scale of, say, the rise of China, but also what the, the emergencies in climate, in, in the war in the Middle East, poverty in Africa and elsewhere. I mean, what do we expect from Europe these days? Well, uh, you know, Chris, this morning I uh, uh, read uh, on the Internet an interview with Helmut Schmidt from Die Zeit. Unfortunately, and it was full of big ideas and for uh, big ideas about how to solve the Greek problem. Unfortunately, the interview took place four years ago mm. when Helmut Schmidt was still relatively lucid. He's now 96 years old and uh, I think could not uh, give an interview of this sort anymore. Uh, apart from uh, such figures of the past, uh, I see really no one in Europe who is uh, thinking on that strategic level. Now, uh, to be sure, on climate change, uh, in some ways, Europe is well ahead of us. Uh, Germany has made an energy turn uh, where they've Mm -hmm. rejected nuclear energy and uh, installed uh, uh, a very large uh, base of uh, of wind power. Uh, France is going to host a global uh, green summit at the end of this year, environmental summit, where uh, environmental problems will at least be considered, which is more than is being done in the United States. Mm. So to that extent, there is some thinking about the problems that uh, you're discussing. The problem of China, I think uh, uh, Europe tends to defer to the United States. Uh, Its problem uh, is uh, Ukraine and uh, Syria. The Europeans are deeply worried about the Syrian uh, crisis and the refugee uh, flow that it's generated. And there, uh, yet again, we have another huge failure of the European Union. In fact, there was so little solidarity shown at the last uh, meeting at which this was discussed that Matteo Renzi, the prime minister of uh, Italy, said, if that's Europe, you can have it. Mm-hmm. I want no part of it. Uh, because he uh, is one of the, uh, he leads one of the countries that is faced with receiving the refugees. They're on the front lines. And the northern European countries don't want to take even the small quota 
that they were asked to right. take by Juncker. So I think this shows you the small-mindedness into which European politics has unfortunately sunk. Prime Minister Cyprus, you know, took that rather scolding tone with with Brussels too. That, that they're on the front line, but I, I just he, wonder. He, he did, but of course, the, that was one of the ways in which I think the Greeks uh, uh, overplayed their hand at the beginning. The uh, the right wing uh, defense minister who uh, uh, is in the coalition with uh, Tsipras said. Uh, if uh, Germany doesn't give us what we, what we want, we're going to ship them all the refugees without any kind of vetting. Or, mm. uh, and it was a, an empty threat. Uh, there were too many threats from the Greek side. It was one of the ways, I think, uh, that Greece misplayed this uh, negotiation. Do we give Germany too little credit for its very, you know, very sound, um, practical role there at the heart of Europe? Well, its very sound practical role is based on the fact that it free rides on the rest of the world's stimulus. And if you go to my garage here in Boston, it's a monument to the German export complex. (laughs) You can't move for super expensive, very nice German cars. But that's actually contingent upon Chinese and American people actually spending money while Germany is saving. And to generalize from their model to the rest of Europe is creating an economic disaster. It's, It's really kind of tragic. It's locally rational and globally disastrous. Picking up on what Art said, there's an interesting... I'm thinking also of their their foresightedness in energy, in the climate, in the environment. Yeah, but come on, look, they're doing the energy vendor, this like this big change in energy, and they've installed a bunch of windmills. Excellent, right? Well, you know, the bomb. <laughs> no, but the bottom line is, if you really want to do this, they have they have the engineering firms, they have the finance because they're well off. They could, they have the best engineers in the world, arguably. They could invent green tech. What would it take? Massive investment by a government who fetishizes what they call the Schwarze Null, the black zero in the budget. They're terrified of debt. Debt is investment. If you get yourself in a position where you confuse the two, you can install all the windmills you want. It's not going to create an energy change. And that's where they're screwed themselves. What what could the wise engineers and the solid burger politicians in, in, in Germany do constructively for Greece in this situation? Well, one specific would be to go with a program that has been discussed for years called Desert Tech, uh, which was an idea that uh, Siemens had uh, 10 years ago to, begi- to begin to build massive solar complexes across southern Europe and, and uh, n- North Africa. The, the disasters that have followed the various Arab Springs have completely closed off the idea of using North Africa. Germany's hope at one point was to use Libya as a kind of giant solar field and then bring the electricity north to, to Germany. But Greece remains. Uh, Germany, uh, I, at the very end of the, of the uh, Papandreou administration, Papa Constantino, their finance minister, was in active discussion with the Germans about making something like a 25 billion euro investment in a, a Greek-based start to the Desert Tech program. This is something that would be enormously beneficial to Greece mm. in terms of investment. Secondly, it would be enormously beneficial to the Germans in terms of providing a stable, long-running source of solar-powered electricity. And in some sense, not, not in a large sense, but give them some alternative to gas from the east. Arthur Goldhammer, have you got a plea for, for Germany? 
Uh, well, An assignment, maybe? I think the immediate plea for Germany is to offer some debt reduction uh, if there is indeed a deal based on this new Greek uh, proposal. And they haven't said that the, uh, the, the actual haircut, we're going to see it. No, but for the first time... cut down of the... For the first time today, Wolfgang Schäuble uh, did not speak of Grexit, and he did speak of debt reduction. He, and uh, he used the word unsustainable for the Greek debt. Now, that's a major concession for Schäuble. Uh, until now, uh, his goal has seemed to be to drive the uh, uh, drive Greek uh, Greece out. Uh, he was probably stopped from doing that initially by Merkel, uh, who didn't want to handle the uh, crisis that would result from that. Uh, we don't know how things have evolved since then, precisely, but I think it's significant that Schäuble today uh, spoke of debt reduction and uh, of unsustainable debt. So uh, that would be a major gesture and I think would be expected uh, in return for this. Uh, perhaps there's been some discussion in advance of this Greek proposal, which on the face of it looks uh, pretty close to surrender. Uh, in exchange for surrender, uh, the Germans surrendered after World War II. They got the Marshall Plan. Uh, if Greece surrenders now, it would be nice if Greece gave them something like the the Schäuble plan uh, as a consolation. My concern is that they'll get the Versailles Treaty. <laughs> <laughs> I want a little, one last crack at American politics coming out of this. I mean, start with Wisconsin. Scott Walker, anti-union, tough nut Republican, uh, is making a presidential campaign uh, out of his record there. Uh, Bernie Sanders got a huge response in Madison. I mean, Madison is Madison, makes Cambridge look conservative in a certain way, but it's still Wisconsin. Uh, and he's, he's, uh, he, he's our Cypress. What are the implications for, for Hillary Clinton, for Barack Obama, for that matter, for the tone of our politics going forward? Okay, so Political Science 101, we're not a parliamentary democracy. We're an electoral college-based system. And so uh, it could well be that Bernie Sanders is our Cypress, but the electoral college system guarantees that Cypress cannot be elected. So I'm, I'm quite serious about this. The constitutional structure mm -hmm. of the United States and the way in which we elect presidents blocks a Cypress from emerging as a candidate who will enter the White House. Full stop. Now, set aside that kind of discussion and think about the ways in which uh, uh, p politics at the margin moves toward dominating politics at the center. What's, what, what Sanders has tapped into is this neglectorate. And what increasingly uh, draws my attention to the issue of income and wealth distribution is watching Davos and the World Economic Forum tell its members that income and wealth inequality, mm. along with global warming, are the two great challenges of the 21st century. And what that tells me is that the smartest minds in the established order understand what the, the vectoring of 21st century globalizing capitalism represents, and they're drawing attention to the issue not to resolve it in ways that Bernie Sanders would like or Alexis Cyprus would like, but because they see what Cyprus and Sanders see and intend to stay out ahead of them. And one of the ways they're doing that is by massive investment in panic rooms. <laughs> Listen, before we're done, a, 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 a little swerve and an echo here from another time that reminds you just how deep and lively our Greek roots are. Ingrid Roland is an American who lives in Rome, in Sicily the other night, in an ancient Greek amphitheater. She watched a performance of The Suppliants. 
from the original tragedian Aeschylus roughly 2,500 years ago. Refugees from Africa in a welcoming Greece are the heart of the drama and its power today. Ingrid Ingrid Roland wrote about it on the New York Review of Books website and over Skype. She gave us a spoken postcard on the play this summer in Sicily and its effect on her. It was pure theater. You don't know what's going to happen. You've got this beautiful silence and all we could hear were birds and thousands of people sitting there in absolute silence waiting for the magic to happen. And then this person rides in on a bike. This... 35-year-old Sicilian minstrel who starts speaking in rhyme and telling a story. A group of Egyptian princesses, 50 of them, who don't want to marry their Egyptian cousins. And so they leave Egypt with their father, and they're greeted by this Greek king because what they do is sail to Greece, wash up on Greek shores, and then go to the temples and declare themselves suppliants, people asking for asylum. They're met by a Greek who says, you don't look very Greek to me. He realizes even though they look completely different, they're relatives. They're exactly the same people. And then he says, you're welcome. And then the evil cousins land on the shores of Greece to take their brides to be back. You've got this writhing chorus of African women. You've got a bazooki band playing and the giant drum going. All of these instruments just get into your body. Your whole body's overwhelmed by the music and by all these people making gigantic gestures. And all of the time, the sun's setting over Syracuse. You've got the rocks changing color as the sun goes down, going from blue sky to pink sky, to deep blue sky. And one of these immemorial sensations, when you know that Plato and Aeschylus personally walked in these same places, that Caravaggio was in the cave next door. And so you feel in touch really with the whole flow of nature as well as of history. You know, you remind me that in this whole Grexit story, what's missing is that tone of tragedy. That's true. When I read some of the editorials about what the Greeks should be doing, there's a certain lack of dignity. Everything's so petty right now in this awful Mediterranean bureaucracy. What Aeschylus is very good at showing is the way that we have to make compromises to create a collective enterprise. Nobody ever quite gets everything they want. Everything is imperfect in this world, but we can make things better if we work together. That was the American writer and art historian Ingrid Roland in Rome. Look for some striking video of that evening of Aeschylus in Sicily on our website, radioopensource.org. Thanks to our studio guests, Arthur Goldhammer, Richard Parker, and Mark Blythe. Our show was produced by Max Larkin, Connor Gillies, and Pat Tomeno, with help from Zach Goldhammer, Grant Holub-Mormon, and Brandon Daly. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our executive producer. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. <laughs> <laughs>